it's old-timey, grimy, and we are back! You didn't know we were gone. You barely missed us. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we have an absolutely bonkers tale to tell you. This lady is wild. She is wild. She really comes up with some interesting stuff. <laughs> I appreciate her creativity. Yes, absolutely. 100%. It's very creative. Uh, meanwhile, over on the Patreon, our supporters over there are getting some bonus episodes coming up. Uh, this week, I'll go ahead and just say it so it's all scheduled out. They will have gotten uh, me telling Amber about uh, well, hanky-panky going on in Albany in the 1800s. Some hanky-panky, some climbing up onto the roof, burying socks... There was burying socks. Yeah, that is very I, unique. I think the first time we've seen burying socks. And then uh, next week on the Patreon, because we've been recording two a week. And uh, so Amber will be telling me all about the very traumatizing and upsetting story of Margarita Peter. Yes. A.K.A. Jesus in her own mind. Yes, it was, it was a very special tale that uh, will make you hug yourself very tightly. Very tightly. You will be girding your boobs if you have them. If you don't have them, feel free to gird your loins. That's fine, too. We don't, you know, have a preference. So, um, all right. Uh, but that is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And the link is in the show notes. If you want to support us, five bucks a month, and you get five bonus episodes a month. So, Okay. Should we talk about Anne Odelia Distabar? Yes, I believe we should talk about Anne Odelia Distabar. Who I actually call Aditha through most of my notes because that seems to have been her birth name, but we'll get into it. This topic was suggested by my brother. Hello, brother. Okay, so I have a couple of quotes to start us off. One is from her own brother, who said of her... She is a stranger to every decent ele element that constitutes humanity. During the years she was a member of our family, we lived in a state of continual fear and turmoil. And this is what Harry Houdini had to say about her. One of the most extraordinary fake mediums and mystery swindlers the world has ever known. The marvelous tact with which she devoted her great powers to the purposes of self-aggrandizement and profit is without peril. So she's obviously an interesting lady. We don't know a lot about her childhood. Uh, that may be due to the era in which she was born, but it's also probably because she just lied, like, all the time. All the time. Constantly lying. Now, if you ask her, she was the daughter of a king and a dancer. Yes, you heard me right. That's King Ludwig of Bavaria and his mistress Lola Montez. And actually, in looking these two up, I discovered a little rumor about how they met, because she was his mistress. Ludwig asked her, in public, if her breasts were real. So she ripped off her dress to show him that they were, in fact, real. And outstanding. Apparently so. <laughs> yeah. My, my. Right? So I'm just going to go ahead and call her Aditha, but in Ad Aditha's little headcanon, her parents in America were foster parents. We can say now, this is all a big probably not. She said she was born in 1854. So by her story, it's impossible for her to have been born of the king and the dancer because Ludwig 
had advocated, abdicated the throne because of Lola by that time. And Lola had fled and was living in California. So, nothing there. Ironically, if she had stuck to what we now think is her real birth date, it would have been possible because she, we think, was born in 1849 in actuality, and in 1848 was when Lola fled and Ludwig abdicated. So she told that lie, and now, you know, 170 years in the future, we're like, ha, gotcha. Impossible. Because we know history. So her most likely origin story comes out of Mercer County, Kentucky, where she was either born Anne Odelia Salomon or Editha, Editha Salomon. Edith with an A. And so if that is in fact where she came from, her father was a music professor at the Greenville Female Institute. Now that's a college that has quite the history. It's been a lot of things. It was a spa, probably, you know, for taking the waters if you were ill. A Baptist school, the home of a Supreme Court justice, and then several different female colleges before becoming an inn, which it is today. So much like her alleged father's school, Editha would have many names and identities over the years. Many, many, many. Because why not? Over 30 aliases. Now, I'm going to give you some of the names she went by in her life in no particular order. Editha Lola Montez, Princess Lola of Bavaria, Editha Lolita Distabar, Madame Masson, or Madame Magoon, the veiled prophetess Vera Eva, Angel Anna, Sister Ignatius, Madame Cagliostro, Swami Viva Ananda, Ida Vidya. It sounds like I'm just throwing out random syllables. Kind of. Baroness Rosenthal and Countess Lansfeld, Countess de Fleury, Countess Anna Sprengel, the New Eve, Reverend Eleanor T. Mason, the White Mahatma, Laura Horos, and quite prosaically, Laura Jackson. The, uh, she's most commonly known as Anna Odelia Distabar, but the New York Times called her the Fat Anna Odelia Distabar. There you go. In fact, pretty much every newspaper called her fat in some manner and uh, repeatedly in some cases, I discovered. It was, it was kind of annoying. <laughs> so to her family, though, at the hearth in the center of her family, she was simply a child of Lucifer. Yeah. Yep. She liked to trick people into doing her chores. I think she even got some of her older siblings with that. Now, the family moved around to D.C., then Baltimore, then Brooklyn, then Cincinnati, then Louisville. But she didn't stick around for too long. She found herself a gentleman, or at least a dude from England, in the 1860s. She was likely in her teens then. Now, she had an obsession with getting things for free. And any way she could work the system to make that happen, she did. So she, she wouldn't pay for anything, and the, the system back then was built a lot on trust. Trust that you would pay for your hotel stay. Because a lot of the times you weren't asked to pay up front, which seems like there's a rather easy solution to that, but whatever. Trust that you would pay back that line of credit you took out and used for a shopping spree. Trust that when a dude gave you his heart, you wouldn't also take the contents of his wallet on your way out of town. 
So she really relied on that trust in order to get things for free. Yeah, like she was described as she would rather spend hours trying to figure out how to trick somebody out of something than put in a few minutes worth of work. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. She, I think, really thrived on the trickery part of it and kind of got a kick out of it when she pulled one over on people, which she did a lot, as you're going to hear. It's pretty much all she did. So she traveled around some doing this, always trying to slip away before she could be caught with her latest scam. She did have kind of a somewhat convoluted get-out-of-jail-free card. The police, when they caught her, she would pretend to have tuberculosis to try to get out of trouble. And haven't we all, you know? Yeah, I mean, TB for the win. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... She, she had a particularly special way of doing this because um, she had in her mouth, as uh, David White on Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope said, quote, an abscessed molar from which she could suck a distressing quantity of blood. By twitching a little and spitting out blood, she could create the impression that she was having a fit of tuberculosis, end quote. And probably freak everybody the hell out. So they're like, oh my God, get her out of here now. Yes, exactly. It is gross. So instead of putting her in a cell, they'd move her to the infirmary. And from there, she could plot her escape. Although sometimes, because record keeping and police work were both equally shoddy when they actually existed at all, she would just get discharged without ever uh, being charged. They would like forget about her. Yeah. <laughs> Like six months later, they're like, "What about that lady who had the blood? You remember that?" Oh, where did? Oh man, did we misplace another one? Damn it! We have got to stop doing that. Now, David White also tells us about a time in Dayton, Ohio, when this little trick didn't work. And we also get some information from uh, Anne's or Aditha's brother himself. She was trying to get out of a hotel bill with her usual tuberculosis trick, but the doctor who was called by the hotel saw right through her. So she countered by pretending to be dead. I guess the doctor's next move was to bring in a bunch of priests. And her own brother showed up then and said, hey, no, she's, she's totally faking. Just no. So one of the priests was like, well, all right, let's find out. Why don't we take this hot iron and put it on her face? And that miraculously brought her back to life. Resurrected! She's back from the dead, people! She managed to flee bowling over a few priests on her way out, as well as, quote, overturning two or three sisters of charity, end quote, in true slapstick fashion. That would have been amusing to watch. Benny Hill music, I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. Then uh, she did some more traveling. At some point when she was still young, she up and ran off to France. She also gave the estate of Lola Montez absolute hell until they paid her $300, which uh, I didn't know exactly what year this was, so I just went with 1870. In 1870, it was $6,900. Nice. This was apparently as recompense for being the king's love child with his mistress. So that's the, that's the going rate. Then she starts working the lecture circuit. This was really a big cash cow for some people. Public speaking was like a thing that they used as entertainment. This is what they would do. They would go to lectures, they would go to sermons, they would go to demonstrations and eventually seances and stuff. 
And so, yeah, people could actually like make money being just traveling lecturers. So by 1870, she's in the New York Daily Herald in an article titled, quote, The Princess Editha, a singular blending of romance and reality. The life history of New York's latest anonyma. It's spelled A-N-O-N-Y-M-A, and I have no idea. I tried looking it up, and you get a lot of anonymous. Yeah, I feel like it was probably like Enigma. Something like that, yeah. That's a good guess, actually. The daughter of Lola Montez, the Bavarian nun and the New York lecturess, a strange and eventful career. So this article, which was nearly two full columns on page three, said that she gave a speech in a flower shop, I guess? Okay. On, quote, the equality of woman and the wrongs of her distinguished mother, Lola Montez. So I guess she's going for, like, hitting two different angles. You know, the equality of women, but also bashing the woman I insist is my mother, but really isn't. Because why not? Yeah. Now, apparently, this presentation was spiced up with a visual component that was pretty impressive. At her introduction, quote, as if by magic, views of splendid castles, turreted walls, the drawbridge and portcullis, knights in glittering arms, cavaliers with flowing hair and waving, waving blooms, fair dames on chargers, melted, I'm going to tell you a thing in a minute, ready for the chase, huntsmen and brilliant cavalcades, passed in panoramic view before the spectacled vision of the expected Jesus Christ almighty, expectant throng. Okay, so here's the thing. I got that from the newspaper, and I used dictation instead of typing it up. It's just so much faster. I did not go through and correct the automatic errors that get incorporated in there. And so I have turded walls. Turded. T-U-R-D-E-D, turded walls. I'm not really sure, but I think that the... Fair dames on chargers melted ready for the chase. I don't know what, what melted is in there. Yeah. So, yeah. There's some. Um, that was, I should have gone through and edited that. <laughs> That's all right. Most of the time I do. That time I forgot. Though the rest of the review in this paper in the New York Herald was not super favorable. Her Royal Highness appeared. It was a sorry sight. She failed. Since the days of the Broadway showman, there has not been such a sell. Her royal eye flashed and wandered, and no athlete ever exerted himself to such a degree to gratify his audience. Her remarks were wild and incoherent, her gesticulation furious, and her general deportment bordering on the insane. The women of the association frowned, and for the time their cause was a laughingstock. After several spasmodic prances, the robust descendant of kings retired, having talked rationally upon nothing and unreasonably upon a thousand topics. Certain it was that not a single bouquet was presented to her, and so the poor princess failed. This review also called her presentation idiotic, nonsensical, and the most humiliating lecture under the sanctioned and earnest approbation of the Women's Suffrage Association. So she's not doing much to help women get the vote. In fact, she's made, making people think we're all lunatics and shouldn't have it. Well, and a lot of the times, too, I, I read that they would come up in the middle of these and denounce her as a fraud, and <laughs> she would just keep going. Yeah, because that was just her thing, just steamroll over people and, you know, just keep going, and eventually somebody is going to have to stop talking, and it ain't going to be me. She should have gone to Congress. I really should have that tattooed on my arm. <laughs> this is what I do. 
So the article does go on to tell her whole story as she tells it. And I think it's kind of important to look at this. How is she presenting herself to people at this time? So it starts off with a young woman named Claudia Solomon, beautiful, pure, and maiden-like, born to a bookkeeper and sent to Bavaria for education at specifically a convent. And uh, Claudia loved it there and became a nun. But then her father had a seizure and died. Keep that in mind, BTW. And for some reason, Claudia came back and then went with the family to New Orleans, where they decided to move. They thought she was going to start up a convent there, but instead she left soon after that. A little while later, a woman was seen at a French restaurant in New York with a priest. He took her to the domestics, as they put it. I think they just had servants working in the restaurant and asked them to meet her every need. Now, there was a famous actress in the restaurant, and she helped this young woman as well, and they got her a room for the night. The actress and the mysterious young woman got to know each other, and then went to bed, and at midnight, the actress was awakened by, quote, agonized moans from an adjoining chamber. The young woman was found to be in, quote, a dangerous epileptic fit, blood issuing profusely from the mouth. I'm just imagining her sucking on that tooth. Ah, it's bad. The doctors managed to get her back to consciousness, but of course she was indisposed for a few days. Probably had to find her fainting couch. So when she was better, she went to a banking house that was owned and run by women. Love it. Although this is, doesn't go well. Uh, she requested a job in the counting house. And just... Just the things that she does, it kills me. She rushed towards the letters and, opening them, asserted her ability as an accountant, giving, by the way, ocular demonstration of her knowledge in the astoundingly rapid manner in which she added up the figures. So she runs into the bank. She says, I want to be a worker in your counting house. I want to be an accountant. And she starts grabbing their, like, probably confidential papers. Yeah. One would think. And just reading off numbers and adding them up in her head and spitting them out and saying, this is why you should hire me. Look how good I am at math. I mean, that's one alternative to a resume, I guess, I suppose. So it was at this office that she then declared that she was the daughter of Lola Montez. And as they say, being ever alert for a penny, to turn a penny, the female broker saw a golden harvest in store for the supposed daughter of the famous Don Seuss, which, my uh, dictation uh, took as Don Seuss. Why not? It's Dr. Seuss's uh, great nephew. Yep. And immediately suggested the idea of giving a lecture on the subject. So she comes in there and she's like, I am brilliant and can put numbers together. And I'm going to do that and show you how brilliant you are. And the ladies at the banking house were like, brava, brava, we must have a lecture. I don't know why people are so excited about lectures. And really, is would this be a lecture on... Counting? Addition? Like, what's, what's happening here? But I think they really wanted a lecture on her dancer, king's mistress, mother. That's what they were really going for. They were like, you can talk about adding some, but could you really talk about, you know, all the... And the one woman show, me and my abacus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So they take her around town some, introduce her to people... But she seems to have a different identity for everyone she meets. To some of them, she introduces herself as Princess Aditha. But to others as, quote, the editor of the druggist's price current. 
the hell? That's random. Very random. And also, like, if you're still with the people that you were saying you were the princess for, why are we changing it midstream? Well, I'm calling her the um, the editor princess. The editor princess. And that's also my new alias. So All right. There we go. Yeah, That works for you, not it, so much for her. It really does work for me, yes. I mean, if anything, you would think she would be counting princess. I don't know. But uh, she's just trying to get her pharma cred, apparently. The article then connects Claudia Solomon, who we heard about earlier, to Princess Aditha, kind of melding the two and saying that Claudia was clearly, quote, soon to be a lunatic. I guess that calling yourself an editor princess, as I'm about to do, is just on the verge of a mental break, but not quite there. Okay. <laughs> okay. And of course, before her big debut on the lecture circuit, she had to get some swanky digs at the Astor House for $20 a day. Amber, I would like you to guess how much that is per day in modern currency. Mm, 1000 You always go high. Uh -huh. $462. Still, $462 a night. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a bit pricey. And she, of course, told the hotel that this would be on the tab of her new banking lady friends. Of course. But she needed somewhere, Amber, somewhere that her many friends could come and see her and kiss the hem of her royal garments. Can't just be doing that in the street. No, 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 no. No. That would not be proper. A princess needs her expensive hotel room. So she then gives her failed speech that they, you know, gave the bad reviews in the paper and then deserted the apartments after at least four days there. So 1600 or thereabouts modern money. Somebody else got her room elsewhere, and of course the next day, when she was supposed to pay up, she had one of her bloody convulsions. Of course As she did. She does, yes. Don't you just wish you could get out of your bills? By just coughing up blood? Yeah. Once she recovered, they had a detective take her to the home of the woman who had gotten her this room. And Claudia, slash the princess, slash the editor, told that woman that she expected the, ho the Hotel Astor to be paid for. Not just her room elsewhere, but the room at the Hotel Astor that was like 460 bucks a night that this other lady had nothing to do with. She's really trying to just... You said you were paying that. I'm not paying that. You said you were. I forgot my wallet. So uh, that lady turned her down, obviously, which made uh, princess editor Claudia angry and violent. And she had to be forced back into the carriage and driven to the police department. She was charged. We don't know with what, but we do know that they said, quote, with an eloquence, grace, and dignity that would have done honor to a princess, she denied in her pecuniosity and proudly asserted her right to the titles which she had assumed. She prevailed, and with commendable humanity, no further action was then taken, and Claudia was driven back to the Aster, where she had another... Terrible, epileptic fit. Mm-hmm. Right? So this was finally enough for a doctor to say, okay, she's crossed the line from soon to be insane to actually, as I, you know, 1800s doctors call it, insane. And so they kept her under guard. The next morning, her symptoms got worse, although the paper assures us that she maintained her beauty, even though she was quite out of it. Mm -hmm. And um, 
She also got a little threatening. Quote, in the heat of the excitement, she's threatened to horsewhip, she threatened to horsewhip half a dozen bystanders at the time. I will horsewhip you all. I am a editor princess. That's what I should get tattooed on me. There you go. <laughs> so her actress pal swoops back in. The doctor pronounces Claudia, quote, or Editha, or the princess, whatever, perfectly insane. I love that particular adverb tacked on there. That's great. Perfectly insane. She is perfectly insane. And she is swept off to an asylum where, of course, the actress insists that she will pay all costs. This could have been maybe a good thing. I don't know, state of the asylums back then. Maybe not. But the asylum won't have her because she needs two doctors to call her perfectly insane. Oh. One's not enough. Well, they're, again, they are 1800s doctors, so I get it. One could just be, uh, as, as we had in our tiny, a, a gentleman who wore glasses and could read and write, and therefore everybody called him doctor. Because glasses and literacy, doctor awesome. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that was over in the bonus episodes on the Patreon. So this article, from which all of this that I just told you, it ends rather disjointedly with, uh, I don't know what happened. I think maybe the writer, like, did some opium and then finished the article. Was, like, got through almost the entire article. I was like, you know, I got about a paragraph left. Now's the time to get fucked up. <laughs> so, uh, where's my poppies? And, uh, so, okay, here's how it ends. This is weird. With Claudia coming to a man at the Astor Hotel in his sleep as a ghost and asking for his protection before transforming back into lunatic Claudia? Again, like I said, opium? Maybe? Maybe? Maybe. So, if I had to guess, she probably slipped away after all the hullabaloo and skipped out on her hotel bill, probably a few lines of credit, and maybe some personal loans from people who thought they were her friend. It's diversion. It's distraction. Keep them all occupied while, you know, over there, while I'm doing this over here. Give them the old razzle-dazzle, you know? <laughs> Amber is now bobbing her head like she can hear the music. I can. Yeah, it's sort of playing, and I'm just picturing her in, like, a, a swinging 20s outfit. Absolutely, yeah. I haven't watched that movie in a long time. I should watch it. I love rewatching things. It's my hobby. Um... <laughs> She also used her supposed nobility for some romance scams. If you can convince a guy you're a princess and then have a minor financial disaster, you look to your white knight for rescue. And then he rescues you and then you're gone before he even knows what happened. Yep, and you got everything in his wallet. Exactly. Now, at the end of the same year in which she was giving lectures on her life as a rejected princess, she ran into some trouble with her usual fake sick diversion that she loved to do so much. Because eventually somebody was going to look in her mouth and figure this out. It just took a lot of doctors to get to that point, apparently. Probably to pin her down and pry her mouth open. That too, yeah. So the doctors at one hospital figured out the deal with her tooth. And so they had security keeping an eye on her. Though as uh, Dave White tells us, not enough of an eye because she'd be more likely to be found hanging around in the men's ward or smoking in the stairwell than in her own bed. Oh, yeah, smoking, whatever tu tuberculosis patients should be doing. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So she decided that she had had more than enough of this incredibly lackadaisical security because they can't even keep her in her damn room or even on her own damn ward. So she lit two mattresses on fire so that they would send her off to the psych ward. Because why the fuck not? Again, as you do. I would. Well, we know, yeah. <laughs> You'll light literally anything on fire. For fun. And so, apparently, in the psych ward, they keep even less of an eye on you back in these times. Because she was able to get herself a nice carving knife. With which she uh, slashed a med student named Paul Masson. Right under the eye. She got him good, they said. So they shipped her off to an actual asylum this time, and after just two months, once again, she was pretty much free and clear. Here is where we take the bonkers, and we add just a, a dash of wild, and a, a sprinkling of what the fuck, <laughs> and it becomes this beautiful, beautiful meal of weirdness, in which she marries the med student that she stabbed at the hospital. Hey, it's a different sort of uh, meat cute. It's a meat cute without the E. Yeah, meat cut. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, she she marries him. Although his obituary said um, his obituary said he very quickly became the assistant director of the hospital where she'd been staying. But the actual director of that hospital later said in court that Massant tried to sneak in and they arrested him and kicked him out. <laughs> They were like, you are, you married one of the patients, the patient who cut you under the eye. We don't want you doctoring here. No, 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 no. Well, and maybe he was just as big a liar as she was. And I do think so. His obituary was very, set him out as this incredibly distinguished personage. He was an immigrant from France. And in France, he was an esteemed journalist, which who's going to check on that, huh? Especially for an obit. And uh, in the papers, the story was that he had helped Editha escape the convent in Bavaria. They had a daughter together, but he died less than two years after their marriage. And a good, I'd say 40% of his obituary focused on Editha and her whole situation with her supposed... So she wrote it. Yes, uh, that would be the answer. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So after just a couple years, she's on her own again, and she goes back to her old ways with a few new ways mixed in. You gotta keep it current. You've gotta constantly be evolving. And she does. She's going to incorporate that favorite realm of tricksters of the mid to late 19th century, spiritualism. Which I think we might do like a whole episode on just spiritualism and like the Fox sisters and stuff in October. Yeah, that could be fun. I think that would be really fun. I've listened to a couple of podcasts about them and it's a very uh, interesting story. So she starts up her career as a spiritualist. She had a, a couple different ways in which she channeled the, the dead, you know, from the other side. One way that she did uh, was to make spirit paintings. Now, these are paintings, they had photographs like this too, but these were paintings that would appear on a canvas during a seance without any interaction from human hands. And in a little bit, I'll get to the way that this probably happened. 
She's also called a spook juggler, and I just didn't look more into that. <laughs> I don't like that at all. I don't like it, and I decided I didn't want to look into it, and I didn't want to see what that Google search would look like, so I... Totally uh, fair. I appreciate that. I just walked away from that particular uh, rabbit hole that was going to trip me and like like make me bite my tongue. So apparently she was actually worse at spiritualism than lecturing about her life as a pretend princess... So she ended up going back to that for a little while. She picked up a husband, too, or at least in her story she did. Um, since none of this was real, she, she picked a count, of course. She married a count. That happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yes, the Count de Fleury, because that's how she was explaining off her daughter. Mm-hmm. Yep, this is where my daughter came from, even though I was married to a, another dude, and it happened during that marriage. But just pay no attention to that. But the Count died so tragically. Of course, because um, everybody does around her. And uh, in any business, you have to work your way through the lower ranks before you can rise. And now it was Aditha's time to rise. Hey, old-timey, crimey fans. If you're enjoying this story, you'll love what we've got going on over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where we give our beloved patrons five bonus episodes every month for just $5 a month. There you'll find content like our series on the Aurora Murderers, when a still-to-this-day unknown killer roamed the streets of Aurora, Illinois, bludgeoning women in churchyards and cemeteries. As well as our weekly bonus episodes where we talk about stuff like the Halloween lesbian murder and London's all-female gang, the 40 Elephants. And then there's our monthly extra extras where we each bring a case the other hasn't heard of yet. With a theme like murder ballads, murders involving weapons from Clue, or Amber's favorite, fire! So come on over to patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. For over 150 bonus episodes and new ones coming every week, that's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Do it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Even in the scam world, it is all about who you know. And she managed to get to know Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. As in sister-in-law of Napoleon himself. Yeah, I know. The sentence, like, she was married to Napoleon's brother, Jerome. And I know it's not pronounced Jerome. <laughs> but that's how it's spelled. And for the love of Pete, that made me laugh so much. Yeah, married to Napoleon's brother, Jerome. Yes, it is. It is very, like, Jerome Bonaparte just sounds like somebody made that up. Yes. And they're trying to trick us. <laughs> exactly. And with everything that we're reading, I'm like, she made that up, too. <laughs> But that one is true. I did actually read into Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. I didn't uh, bring in any, any of that into the story, but I, I now know a lot about her kind of weird life. So through this association, Aditha managed to get nearly $250,000. Now, the sources that's from didn't specify, so I'm not sure if that's new-timey or old-timey dollars. Usually when they don't specify, it's old-timey, but that's a lot of money. That is a fucking lot of money. If it's 250000 in old-timey money, then it's over $6 million today. Now, I can believe that because she didn't just scam Madame Bonaparte. 
She also fleeced some of her friends, too. And Madame Bonaparte didn't have a whole lot, so yeah, she would have had to, because uh, he, Bonaparte's father didn't super approve of her actions in marrying, you know, Jerome. And so it was considered a black mark on her that he only left her three or four small houses and all of his wines. The total um, was worth about 325000 back then. Yeah, because I, I think it was all of her friends. And I, I love, I love, love, love how the Order of the Jackalope put it. Uh, Elizabeth managed to introduce her to a better class of gullible idiot. Yep. <laughs> I enjoyed that, too. <laughs> that was very accurate phrasing here. Again, she mostly seems to have gotten away free and clear with that one. Although, someone did throw a grenade in her window. <laughs> So somebody is pissed off and has grenades. Well, I mean, rich people, why not? Sure, why not? Just have grenades. I would. That's definitely like beyond get out of town time when they start breaking out the grenades. Oh yeah, or shooting cannons in your house. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Bringing up the boiling tar mm -hmm. and a sack full of feathers. She did, of course, survive. That wasn't even hurt. I don't even know if the grenade went off. Now, around this time... She's described during her lectures as, quote, about 30 years of age, a large physique and commanding appearance, dressed in a suit of black with an elaborate train edged with white lace. Her voice was firm and confident. She made no gesture with her hand and expressed emotion in passages of denunciation by tossing back and shaking her head. She is a woman of culture and was frequently applauded. So she's definitely improved. Her lecturing now, if she's able to get this kind of a, a good review and not called idiotic and nonsensical. So, although the content here is kind of getting a little iffy because I have to better know the context of that time, but it felt kind of anti-Catholic. She is supposed to be Catholic. So, but, you know, maybe verging into spiritualism kind of, you know, brought I, her to a different religion and she's no longer Catholic and now she, she's against Catholicism. But it, it felt pretty, pretty anti-Catholic. I feel like if you're pretending to be a spiritualist, though, you have to let go of any ties that you had to being a religious person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're, you're, you're now, it, it's, it's like if you switch any religion, you know, if, if I'm Catholic and I go Buddhist. You know, I got to drop the old one, I guess. Yeah, you're going to have to let go of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's just very weird. These two things don't go together. No, no. One of these things is not like the other. After the Baltimore Bonaparte scam, she made her way to New York, where she splashed out on a nice place and enough trappings to look rich because she had this big haul from Bonaparte and her friends. And then she made another new friend, William H. Vanderbilt, son of the recently deceased Cornelius Vanderbilt, railroad magnate. Now, what does the son of a recently deceased railroad magnate have, Amber? Uh, money. Money is the answer to that question, yes. And so here she went back to her spiritualism angle, but she seems to have practiced and made a new and more specific scam. She was conning William Vanderbilt out of some of his fortune by giving him advice, investment advice from beyond the grave. 
Yeah, because who better than dead people to tell you what to do with your current money? Right? Well, it seems like he felt a little uncertain having all this money and being suddenly kind of thrust into wealth and, and having control of it. And so he really, really wanted to talk to his dad about it. But his dad was dead. So that was harder. But not impossible, according to Aditha. Not impossible at all, because she got some, you know, some advice from him. She roused the peaceful spirit of his dead father to get some stock tips. Why not? Why not? So, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, buy low, sell high? What did he say? We don't know. <laughs> oh, God, I could see this happening today with crypto and NFTs. Right? <laughs> I could totally see somebody being a spiritual, like, running that angle. <laughs> Scamception. I need the password for his crypto bank. I can't get into the wallet. Seance harder, damn it. I oh. could actually see that coming back just to get into crypto wallets because that's something that people don't really realize is um, nobody can get it. Yeah. It's just gone forever if you don't share that with, with like your spouse or whatever, or have like instructions in your will on how to get into it. Yeah, there's no recover password. No, no recover password. And there was like a, a guy in the news, this was a while ago, who had accidentally thrown away his drive that had it on. Ugh. And he had spent like, I think something like two years digging in a landfill trying to find it because now it was worth millions. Oh my God. And he has no access to his own money. Because there, there is no forgot password. None. Like, it's just gone. Unbelievable. And, you know, we're shocked at all these people who gave Aditha money. Right? And yet. And yet, we are still doing it today. <laughs> but yep. it's the future. It is the future, yes. The future! We love it. So she actually did a pretty good job or, you know, um, dead Cornelius did a pretty good job. Dead Cornelius. Let's give him the credit. Yeah. Yeah. And William did turn a profit for a while, but then his account started to dip down a little bit and then he started to think maybe something's amiss. He didn't think about Aditha. He was like, now I got a lot of people don't like me. I got a lot of enemies, nemeses, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, maybe one of them's messing with my money. So he hired the Pinkertons. And the Pinkertons were like, nope, it's that bitch. It's her. <laughs> she was literally just buying herself stocks with this money. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, like, elegant and convoluted is the way to go. But sometimes you just got to get the blunt edge of the, of the axe just right down on there. Like, she had no fucks to give. Oh, really? Absolutely zero. Zero of them. I wouldn't even be surprised if she was like, we're friends. Yeah. He said I could. He totally said I could. His dead dad said I could when I talked there to him. There you go. In the seance. So again, she seems to skate clear of this. Even though her victim is a wealthy man and powerful, you would think that he would bring down the law in her head. But no, she's just like, la-di-da. Gonna go scam over here now. But what she really needs is to find another Clyde to her Bonnie, another Sonny to her Cher, another Roy to her and, Siegfried. 
free. Another husband. <laughs> Another husband. Not that she'll actually marry him, most likely, but she'll just tell people she was married to him. Because why not? So then she brings in General Joseph H. Distabar. I think she really just wanted the last name Distabar. Well, okay, so he was a West Virginia statesman and artist. But we don't really know if he was actually Distabar. <laughs> he could have been posing as much as she was posing as a princess. We have no way of knowing. That is totally fair, because General Joseph Hubert Distabar was married with kids. Yes. And it doesn't seem like a statesman and an artist would be doing some of the things we're going to find out he did with her. Namely, scamming a lot of people out of money, essentially. So they did, maybe, have one or two kids together. We're not sure. So what we do know is that in 1880, Aditha started experiencing these spiritual manifestations. She's haunted. Now, conveniently, General Joseph Hubert Distabar was on business in Kansas when this happened. So it was just her and her two daughters at home. They were said to be seven years of age and a newborn. So, of course, naturally, what does she do? She coughs up blood. She starts having these weird fits. Stuff just starts flinging itself across the room. You've all seen Poltergeist. Yeah, all by itself. Nobody threw it there. Even one picture just went from one wall to the other. <laughs> teleported. Somebody it's teleported. Somebody or something shoved a maid. I'm sure Aditha was nowhere nearby. <laughs> I can see her just... <laughs> maid walks by. She's just kind of like chilling in the hallway. And the maid passes her and she just... Oh, but it was a it was a ghost, dude. It was a ghost. Probably that same ghost that moved my painting from one wall to another. Yeah, and, and really could claim like I saw nothing because if it was a spirit, nobody would see it. Exactly. And you know, I I would never do something like that. I am a princess and I always behave as one. This from the Chicago Tribune. The most unearthly noises were heard in her room, and she pretended at one time to have become deathly sick through the ghost-like manifestations which she claimed perpetually surrounded her. So finally, after a little while of this, they were like, okay, I think it's exorcism time. Can somebody call the priest, please? Priest comes in. We really don't get any word on how successful he was at banishing the spirits. We do find out that he saw some angel wings on the ceiling, though. Oh, pretty. Pretty, pretty, yeah. So this is going about as well as expected. Now, all of this, as you can tell from the fact that we have the Chicago Tribune weighing in on it, did draw a little bit of media attention. Probably exactly what she was going for, because now she's known as a spiritualist. And so she makes her money this way for several years. She develops new scams. Um, one of the scams was telling a woman that her brother, who was living abroad at the time, was dead. And she's like, oh, you know, there's an inheritance, but it's going to take so much money on your part to get it because you have to just pay all these things. And, you know, so I can help you if you just give the money to me and I can take care of all that mess. You, will, you won't have to worry about anything. The lady gave her uh, $85,000, which is $2.5 million today, and then Aditha split, as she does. And the brother wasn't 
dead. I'm, I mean, it wasn't specified, but I'm pretty sure that was a lie. <laughs> so, yeah. Took the lady for every last penny she was worth. Yeah, and apparently the lady lived out the rest of her days as a poor person. Yeah, she was completely defrauded of all of her money and had nothing. And her brother was still alive, probably, over in China. So she also used a similar scam, except this one involved ghostly violence. I love that. It's, it's fantastic. It really is. So she's trying to convince this lady that she has some ghostly attackers and they're going to get her. And I guess the lady maybe wasn't fully buying it because Aditha's like, okay, I got to convince her somehow. Maybe physical proof will help. So I'll just stab her. And then she'll think it was a ghost. Yeah, because that's, that's how most people think. Yeah. If I am stabbed in the side, my first thought is generally, oh, there's a ghost here? Damn it. So, uh, the thing is, is that Aditha did this when there were witnesses around, which is not super bright. If you're going to pretend to be a ghost stabbing someone, you need no one else to see you stabbing someone. That's just... That's just rule one of ghostly stabbings. There's a surprising amount of rules for ghostly stabbings. You'd be shocked. Yeah, like, really, I think the only rule is make sure the spirit does the stabbing. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Of course, I'm feeling like this is, I'm saying this constantly in this episode. She managed to get out of town without facing any justice. So now she's literally stabbed a woman and is seeing no consequences. She has stolen money from millionaires. She has pretended to be haunted and even got a priest somehow in on it or to believe her or something. And uh, she stabbed a lady but said it was a ghost. So um, anybody will just, they just let her go all the time. They just let her go. So she also continued with the spirit painting and spirit writing. This is where the ghosts of artists and writers can come back to give us some new material or like a reprint of an old one. So you would think, God, you would think you would need to be like a really good artist to pull this off. Nope, she sucked. She 100% sucked. She was terrible and people bought it. She even added her own little... Aditha princess editor twist to it in which she said that some of the artwork she produced was actually old and had been given to her by her mother no had been given to her mother Lola by the king so this is part of her family history and also was given to the mistress of a king therefore more valuable of course of course I don't know how often she did this one, but one thing that stood up in the, in the papers and everything was that she would start claiming in the media that somebody important had bet her money on whether or not she could produce a spirit portrait for them. No such bets had been made. The people who she said made the bet came out in the press. They were like, I didn't know. I didn't say that. I don't know her. She doesn't even go here. She doesn't even go, go here. here. So in 1887, she met a lawyer named Luther Marsh. He was in his 70s. 
and had just suffered a terrible loss of both his wife and a young daughter dying within a close time frame. So he is vulnerable as hell. And I'm sure that the second his wife died, her alarm bells just started going off. And she just started like left her house and just started walking towards his house. Like I can sense a disturbance in the vulnerability force. Like just stalked the obituaries. (laughs) Probably, yeah. So he had once actually been partners in a law firm with Chester Arthur, United States president. There you go. So she pretty much just was like, okay, your your wife and daughter, they're talking to you from the great beyond, you know. And so you should give me stuff. And somehow managed to talk him into giving her his house. His house on, might I add, Madison frickin' Avenue. For $100. $100. That's $3,100 today. And she turned around and mortgaged it for 11000 today. She moved her family in and even brought several of her fellow spiritualists that she used as like, you know, assistants, gophers, probably like maids. She would give seances there. She made spirit paintings, which of course Marsh then bought. Oh, I hate everyone. He's a victim and I still am like, dude, like I'm gonna blame you. A little bit, at least. I'm going to blame you. You're believing way too hard in this. Grief makes you real stupid It really does. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. It's just frustrating to watch. I can't imagine how anyone close to him felt watching this and just wanting to shake him and say, like, stop listening to this crazy woman. So she would have her seances there, which uh, she charged between $100 and $5,000 for. Yeah, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of money now. That's a lot of money now, yeah. Spending $5,000 on a freaking seance? Absolutely not. So the press kind of starts to look at her more closely. I feel like there's a possibility that this all was engineered by the people who cared about Marsh and wanted more attention drawn to this so that somebody somewhere would stop this woman. So finally someone's doing something about this woman. The press are looking at her. They find evidence that she was a fraud. So those spirit paintings that we talked about, well, there were people who were willing to testify that they had sold these chemicals to General Distabar. You know, statesman and artist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, these chemicals, what you would do is you would slather them on a painting. And then over time, they will just kind of gradually fade away. I don't know if they evaporate or what the deal is or if it's some sort of chemical reaction. But they'll just fade away and leaving only the painting. But it happens over time. So it looks like the painting is being made before, like right as you watch it. Like, as it's drying, it becomes to, like, it starts to appear. Exactly, yeah. I think that would actually be pretty cool to see. It kind of sounds neat. It it does sound kind of neat, but I would not pay. Oh, no, 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 no. Even $100, I would not pay that much for it. No, 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 no. I just I just want this shit on YouTube or something. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's evidence of that, and now we know how that worked. So this, actually, all this attention on her 
starts a little, not turf war exactly, but kind of, I don't know, reputation war between Aditha and Marsh on one side, and on the other side, the community of magicians in New York City. Magicians hate this one trick, let me tell you. Well, because she sucks at it, and apparently, like, I did see something about she tried to do a sleight of hand, but it was in front of a mirror, <laughs> and so everybody saw it. She's so dumb. Why does everybody listen to her and believe her? She's so dumb. I guess at least some of the people who saw that and see some of the things she does where, you know, she, like, stabs a person and pretends it's a ghost or whatever, I guess some of those people would, would stop believing her or would never believe her to begin with, but there still seems to be a plentiful population of people who will buy this. So there would be like different, these are more lectures and presentations, and this is all just really great entertainment for people. The magician gave a show that showed, you know, all, all of the different aspects of her routine and, and basically debunking all of it. And then Marsh, who still believed just gave a talk about how totally awesome and super on the level Aditha was. Then she actually was going to team up with that magician, the one who gave the show debunking her, and they were going to have like a two-person show together was the idea, which is weird. But she had already signed a contract with an agent who was going to get her other gigs. So she had to break her contract or none of this is real. Or none of this is real, yeah. Well, that, that guy did go to the cops, the, uh, the agent. He went to the police, and since I guess he couldn't get her in trouble for violating her contract, he just spilled everything about what she was doing with Marsh. He got their attention there. I also am sure, because it's lawyers, man, that all of his like lawyer friends found this guy like, like, put out the word, we need people who have been scammed by her or wronged by her. And eventually he came forward and he was like, I got a story. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you about this bitch. So he tells the police all this and even told them the various tricks of her trade that she had told him. She's like, oh, I do, you know, the spirit painting with this goo and <laughs> that fades away and I do the seances with, you know, I'm probably like, you know, cracking my knees and have some sort of like light visual trickery going on. I'm just glad she didn't bring freaking ectoplasm into it. Which is gross. Very gross. Yes, I am actually grateful that there is no ectoplasm this time. It's nice to see a spiritualist that didn't feel the need to succumb to gross egg whites and Toilet paper or whatever. She probably just didn't want to put it in her mouth when she already has the blood trick. Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. You're probably right about that. Actually, yeah. She has the blood trick. And, okay, you take some egg and paper and put it in your mouth where you have an abscessed molar. Yeah, it's not going to work out. That's a terrible idea. That's a, Let's put raw egg near this. Can you get, like... It could have made this story a lot shorter, though. It could have, yeah. Yeah, it could have. Well, well, we'll hear from Houdini about exactly how short the story should have been at the very end, because Houdini has some things to say, some more. But uh, in the meantime, people are starting to kind of cotton on to there's a problem here with what's going on with Marsh, and they managed to find her brother, George. Now, he's the one I quoted at the top of the show. He showed up and he was like, I have some stories for you guys about her. 
about that child of Lucifer. So he claimed that she was once kicked out of school for, quote, generally unruly conduct and an amount of extraordinary devilment. I like that. Devilment, devilment, devilment gun, gum. <laughs> no, better the first time. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I'm leaving it in. So, finally, finally, Aditha and General Destabar got locked up for, quote, feloniously combining and conspiring to cheat Luther Armarsh of his property and grand larceny. Marsh, oh, he tried to bail her out. God damn it, Marsh. If I, at least the authorities were like, no, dude, no, come on. No, we're not doing this. They did not allow him. And uh, now about her brother, and we're going to go into, into some of his stories he told of her and uh, tea he spilled about, about Sissy. She, she said, Solomon is not my brother. He was at one time, but I disowned him. He is a scapegrace, a black sheep of the family, a miserable character. So is a scapegrace like a scapegrace? It's like a scapegoat and disgrace in one, like portmanteau? I don't know. Or maybe it's not a word. Probably not a word, but if she says it convincingly enough, you will think that it is. Many people will believe it and probably give her money for it, yes. Because this is her life. Now, this is uh, what Brother George had to say about her. Whenever she enters a house, peace departs, and with it, everything portable. Nothing is safe in her hands. I would not believe her under oath in any circumstances. She has destroyed the peace of mind of everyone who has even said good morning to her, and we hope now to lose sight of her altogether. Brotherly love. He just, like, keeps showing up out of nowhere to be like, look, let me set y'all straight. Exactly, yeah. There's a couple of truths that you need to hear, so sit your ass down. She's a liar. She will take all of your things and your money and your happiness. She's evil. Stop listening to her. Stop believing her. She's the child of Lucifer, damn it. Right, and he's just like, I just need to warn you guys, because, like, she already ruined my life. Stay away from her. Everybody hates her. Stay away. And some people listen, not enough, but he was a really entertaining witness in court. He was proving that she was his sister, and then the defense went on cross-examination and asked him about his prior arrests and when he was last arrested, and he was brutally honest about that. His reply to that question was, it has been three years since I have drank any rum. He later clarifies, quote, I have been arrested 48 times in my life, 47 for drunkenness and once for forgery, the latter charge of which I was acquitted. I have been arrested in every city that I ever got drunk in. At least he's honest. He's honest and he sounds <laughs> like a real good time. He, he really does, yeah. Uh, one article, I must say, in the Chicago Tribune about her during this time is headlined Insanity and Spirits, which is just a beautiful headline, I think. Then we have this from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. They are the opposite of complimentary. The very, very opposite. This is probably the most brutal takedown 
I've seen in any newspaper since she gave her first lectures. Because <laughs> that was pretty brutal. But this is brutal in a very different way. She looks like the Central Park hippopotamus. Oh my. And when stirred up, she made the greatest swash and commotion as that mighty animal does. Other insults that were in uh, both the Brooklyn Daily Eagle and some other newspapers. The fat medium, the fluffy medium, the ponderous medium, the fat fair and 50 princess. I think she was around 50 at this time. The bulky spirit broker. And even when she, she couldn't even talk without them being like, fat, you're fat. Because she was talking to her lawyer and one paper said she did it in a fat whisper. A fat whisper. How the hell is a whisper fat? They also referred to her as the 200-pound enchantress. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if, if you did this, Christy. I know that you and I have watched uh, Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if our listeners have watched it as well. I somehow managed to turn my subtitles on for Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to do this. But there was a lot of writhing moistly. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I also have my uh, my subtitles on, but I have them on all the time. I like reading <laughs> better than listening. <laughs> I, I do as well, so it worked for me. But there were a few times that they would try to say writhing moistly in different ways, and it got real interesting. So if any of our listeners don't watch with subtitles, I do recommend it if you want to cringe a little. You also get fabulous descriptions of the music. Um, menacing synth industrial music plays. Yes, yes, <laughs> that like was that. on there. And I've noticed that that's not just in the most recent season, although this one, there was a lot of squelching and words like that. But in, in I've, I've rewatched it a couple of times, because again, I'm a chronic rewatcher. And I've noticed that they definitely do the music thing. Like, I would like to, if I had the time and the, the frickin' drive, man, I would create a database of the bizarre musical descriptions found in Stranger Things closed captions. There, there are really some uh, inventive closed captioning. Yes, yes. I, I really appreciate the hell out of the closed captioning people who do that because they're making it fun. It is quite fun, and yeah. they were much kinder than any of the newspapers. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty rough. Do you think she squelched wetly? I imagine she did at some point, or if she didn't, they certainly probably said she did. So she wasn't as entertaining in court as her brother was. It must run in the family. She said, in court, what do I care what the newspapers say? The reporters are a lot of constitutional liars. What have those 12 men in the dirty box got to do with this case? No more than my hat. I know what I am doing. I will not be gagged and shut up by any judge or jury, and I'll let them see that pretty soon, too. It's just like we said, if she just keeps talking and never stops, no one else can get their say. So the evidence is presented. The jury did have their first vote split a little bit. It went 10 for conviction, 2 against. Very soon after that, one of the two switched sides. So now it's 11 to 1. And that one, man, did he stay stubborn. But he had a limit. Everybody has a limit, and we have to respect that. So he said, when they tried to present him evidence to convince him that she was guilty, he said, no, I will not listen to any evidence. There's a good juror. Right? 
He said, quote, a woman born out of wedlock was just as much entitled to consideration as one born in wedlock. And since she was illegitimate, he was on her side for keeps. Hmm. He's basically, his entire verdict is based on the circumstances of her birth, supposedly. And just the fact that he said, I will not listen to evidence. I'm like, but no, did, did anyone explain your, the first job of a juror? <sighs> listen to evidence. But then the judge said, if they didn't come to an agreement, they'd be locked up to deliberate more on Sunday. And uh, Mr. Holdout changed his tune. So for keeps also means when someone tries to keep me indoors on a Sunday. They're the, they're they're synonyms, really. Yeah, same thing. Same same thing. Yeah. And they found her guilty of fraud, but with a recommendation for mercy. And she also had to give Marsh back his property, although she might have done a lot of that earlier, and then said that the spirits told her to. Really, it was so she didn't also have to go to civil court. Yeah, absolutely. So she got six months on Blackwell's Island. And uh, during her sentence uh, at the prison, she worked as a seamstress. When she got out, her daughters were taken away from her. Now, I, I honestly can fully support not having reunification of this particular family. But the reasoning was not, you know, oh, she goes around scamming everybody. She's immoral. The reasoning was she lived with a dude and they weren't married. She's immoral. Ah, yes. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I, I agree with the result. I do not agree with the reasons. She, uh, she tried to make a go of some sort of theatrical career. That went absolutely nowhere because no one wanted to see her. She's losing some of her attraction, whatever magnetism it is that makes people believe her. She's still got some left in the, in the tank, though. Don't you worry. She's still got some. Uh, then, as you do, she went off to Europe in disguise as a nun. As you do. As you do. And then throughout Europe, she uh, called herself Mrs. Marsh. That's in really good taste. That's just in excellent taste. To call yourself the wife of the man who you scammed out of a bunch of money by making him think you could contact his dead wife. So she came back to the U.S., landed in Chicago, she actually finally got in some more trouble. The biggest trouble yet. She ended up being tossed in Joliet prison for two years for defrauding a woman of $1,000. Frickin' finally. Yep, they caught on to her antics. Yes, they did. She's back out again by 1891 and faking her own death. As you do. She just is doing what every completely normal non-evil person would do. But you know what? Here's here's the big mistake is we fake our death and we don't go to Albany. There you go. Yeah, yeah. This is a this has been a day of faking deaths because I had a fake death in my You gotta <laughs> go to Albany if you're gonna fake your death. It's just the thing. Yeah, she did it wrong. She faked her death and went to Boston. Yeah. It's not the same. Not the same. No, you gotta fake your death and go to Albany. Yeah, that's another thing from the Patreon. People just faking their deaths all over the place today. I don't know what the deal is. Shit happens, man. Yeah, right? Sometimes you got to fake your death. Uh, supposedly, she had taken her own life by jumping off of a ferry. In reality, she jumped in and then just swam to shore, only surfacing as needed. Let's spend a halfway decent swimmer or 
jumped off really close to shore. Well, because, like, I, I read at the time, she was, like, 250 pounds. Yeah, yeah. She might have even been closer to 300. Well, yeah, and maybe she's really good at floating. Women are better at floating than men because we have a higher fat content, just naturally. Um, so, uh, one, that's why there was a lot of fun stuff with witches back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> and, two... I mean, I'm not trying to be offensive, but it seems like she had a maybe higher than average fat content. And so maybe, you know, she was just good in the water. I don't know. Yeah, because I, I don't I didn't see anything that people saw her really jump off. It was just like assumed that she had jumped off. Because she had said she was going to beforehand. I wouldn't be surprised if she had said she was going to and she wrote these notes and then she gets on the ferry and when no one's looking, hops off. And yeah, they sure. just assume that she had jumped off. She's very good at being sneaky. When she wants to be. When she wants to be. Sometimes she just stabs a person in the middle of a crowded park. There was a ghost! There was a ghost! So, a few weeks later, there's a new medium in Boston. And it, it's, she's immediately recognized. She kind of is, a, she, she cuts a distinctive figure. She weighs nearly 300 pounds. She draws attention to herself just naturally. It's like a, it's, and it's not anything about her looks. It's like a compulsion that she needs to do. That's why she talks all the time and won't shut up. And, and how she gets people to believe her is she just needs people to pay attention constantly. She feeds off of it. That and trickery. And they work well together. She also had a cheap AF blonde wig that was fooling absolutely not a soul. People figured out the game pretty quickly, and then the Boston Globe started talking about it, and she noped out of town, as she does. She next landed in Chicago with the name Vera P. Ava. Now, her new story was that she, she goes back to the well with her, you know, convent tale, and she had lived in a convent. She had become a nun, but then... She came into her magical powers. Mm. And now she had fled the church and the church was out to get her. So the, the Society of Jesus, which according to her is Catholicism's like assassin corps, was on to her. And so she did sort of fake her death a second time. Yes, that's right. A second time. Because why not? Why not? This time, she had a friend drop her off at a Catholic church because she was on a mission to be able to live freely without the threat of the Jesus assassins. Sinister agents, the Society of Jesus. I love that. I love that. <laughs> the Sinister Society of Jesus. So she's going to go to the church and try to work something out with the priest that she thinks is maybe the head of the Sinister Society of Jesus. So what she does is she has a friend drop her off, goes inside, asks if she can pray. The priest says, yeah, he's doing other things. So he goes somewhere else. She leaves before the appointed time to be picked up. And her friend comes back and is like, oh, my God, they killed her. They killed her. <laughs> Talk about jumping to conclusions. Well, she set it up that way. She did, but it's still... I'm sure she had a lot of drama around it. Like, she was, you know, pretending to be all tense and worried and everything on the way to the church and everything. But, oh my gosh. It's... 
they'll believe stuff without her even needing to tell them that. It's absurd. Next, she showed up in Cincinnati, and she is continuing this whole Jesus assassins thing. She said that when she went into the church, the priests drugged her and then shipped her off to Cincinnati. She didn't remember any of it. So the police in Cincinnati pick her up, and they send a little letter to the Chicago police like, hey, we got this lady here who's kind of off a rocker. And uh, do you they're, want her back? Yeah, they're like, no, she's yours. Yeah, you the, want her? And they're like, nah. Yeah, the Chicago police were like, oh, with that kind of a pitch, how can we resist? No, keep her. Please. We, we beg you. We don't want her. Yeah. Just let her go and do her thing somewhere else as long as she doesn't come back here. And once again, she caught the attention of the press and her true identity was revealed. Next, she was back at the lecture circuit and then the seance game for a while. At some point, she married, uh, as the New York Times put it, William J. McGowan, who had considerable money. He died soon afterward. Surprise! They do die pretty quickly after they marry her. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Just a wee bit suspicious. She goes to Rome. They arrest her for swindling. They kick her out of the country. They're like, this is not our problem at all. Please return to America. Then she's down in New Orleans. It's around 1898, and she either married or pretended to marry, probably pretended since he actually survived, uh, <laughs> Theodore Jackson, uh, who also went by Horos or Thoros. So they started up uh, what absolutely by its name must be a cult. The Colony of the Order of the Crystal Seas. Yeah, that sounds like a cult. Sounds like a cult. It seems like mostly what they did, though, was tell people's fortunes and then somehow use that to blackmail them. So when they're doing their cold readings, they're probably like more looking for, you know, any evidence of dirty secrets or even just flat out accusing the person of doing something wrong that the person hadn't even done. Because as you can see, she can just go around lying and everyone freaking believes her. They then went off to London and uh, spent some time in Paris and then Cape Town. She's all over the place. She's one of our worldliest travelers that we've ever had. Well, she, I mean, she has to. She has to get the hell yeah. out of town because she keeps doing all these terrible things. Yeah, it's the life of a scan ar scam artist. You can never settle for one, at one place for too long. You just can't. So in Cape Town, she also uh, took a bunch of money for a guy and said she was going to start up a colony of brotherly love. Which she would do, just not there. She also presented herself as a lady doctor who had come to trust in the spirits more than science. Oh, there you go. Seance is over science, guys. That's where it's at. I love that she just started calling herself a doctor. She's like, well, I used to be a doctor, but, you know, I'm not anymore. Yeah, why not? So they get to London again. They start up that brotherly love colony, a.k.a. a cult. And uh, in the process, committed what the New York Times called fraud unique in the annals of time. So they called this, we're going to say what it is, cult. Uh, it's even, well, it's a sex cult. Theocratic unity. And in this cult, 
She and her husband had divine power. So they recruited vulnerable young teenage girls into the cults. And they told the girls that it was their duty as adherents to theocratic unity to maintain poverty, chastity, and obedience. That last one is important because that's how they got the girls to do bad things. Because they're obedient. You have to be obedient to God. Guess who's God? Uh, That's me. (laughs) Do as I say. So they did get arrested for this. There was like some fraud charges and some rape charges. You don't always see those right side by side either. So, and uh, buggery. Which is butt stuff. That is butt stuff, yes. So, I'm not sure if both of them were arrested for it or just Theodore. So, she acted as the lawyer for both her and her husband. Because why not? Why not? Well, she likes to talk. I mean, why not? She gets to cross-examine her own victims. Mm. Can you imagine how awful that would be? Talk about being re-victimized. It's like being re-re-re-re-re-victimized. Terrible. That definitely shouldn't be allowed. So it seems like... Oh yeah, they had immorality charges. And so in September 1901, the Daily Telegraph tells us that they were convicted of all charges. The sentence was Theodore husband was sent to prison for 15 years and Editha for seven. Now she got out in about five years and was on parole when of course she fled. And then now she had Scotland Yard on her tail. Fun. Next up, throw a dart at the map and that's where I'm going to do my next scams. All right, we're going to Michigan. There she started up a new little group, which she called the House of Israel, or the Flying Rollers. So, I'm not sure. I, I was found a couple of references to the Flying Rollers, and I think that one of the things they actually said, I think they were being literal and saying that they could fly. But then when you got down to it and finally got the full truth from them, you found out that they meant... Um, in, in your mind. Just in your mind. So. She, uh, she was, of course, the queen of the Flying Rollers. Another title to add to the list. That didn't go well. Uh, for some reason, she had to flee town. Now, she gave the reason later. She said, we just left them. They have it in for me because I made them take baths when I went there to take charge. Some of them hadn't taken a bath in six months. I called in the authorities. I had the law force them to do it. That's why they introduced me when my back is turned. Now you probably scammed them out of a bunch of money and then ran off. And now you're just saying, oh, they're dirty. Then, of course, this is the logical conclusion of this is where she was always meant to end up. With an apocalypse cult, of course. I feel like that's very fitting here. It is fitting. It was inevitable from the very beginning. Probably from the moment she let out her first cries after being born. She was like, I'm going to start an apocalypse cult. So um, 
this is um oh, this is this is fun. The one newspaper in describing it, uh, this whole setup here, notorious woman undertakes to teach people how to vibrate to safety when the grand finale comes. Oh man, that is a headline. Amber would love to vibrate to safety. <laughs> I'm gonna vibrate to danger. Yeah, you will actually, that's true. Oh my gosh. So the big day is gonna come in 1917. I don't know if you've checked a history book lately, but uh, we're still here. For now. For now, for the moment. And uh, the newspaper said that, uh, according to her, man and his works would be shaken to pieces, all except the 144,000 elect, which the elect are, of course, the people who know how to vibrate. She also claimed that, oh, this is all so beautiful, quote, by concentrating her vibratory forces, she could have pied all the type in every newspaper office in the city if she wanted to, and turned every one-column story into a two-column story. Oh, my. By ch concentrating her vibratory forces. Oh, my God. I wish I had vibratory forces. <laughs> I would be such a happy... I would never fucking leave the house. New superpower that you want? <laughs> no, I already have my my uh, my super anti-hero. Ah, yes. So I am actually the invisible serial rapist. That's terrible. <laughs> I think I'm going to be excellent at it. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> Oh, and also, Aditha could cure gastritis by, by vibrating. She'll vibrate your butthole. Yeah. There's the buggery. There's the buggery right there. She's <laughs> we, vibrating everybody's butthole. We found it. Or, excuse me. No, let's do the possessive. Butts hole. That's <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> we started doing that at the house, so instead of saying butthole, it's butts hole. And it's so much more disturbing. It is very disturbing. I don't like it. It's caught on fast. It's I enjoy it. Terrible. It's absolutely terrible. So her idea, as described to the newspaper, was that anybody could be immortal if they just followed the Ten Commandments. But then they were like, okay, so if anybody can be immortal just by doing that, then why do you need to teach them how to vibrate? Why do they need vibrator lessons? Didn't think I'd be saying that today, even knowing this and having written it today. I didn't even know they gave lessons. <laughs> yeah, right? Perhaps I need one or two. <laughs> Everybody's going to get her master's degree. Can I get a master's in that? <laughs> I'm about to be a doctor too now. <laughs> so her response to this was that without her vibratory lessons, a man would violate one particular commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Because by not knowing how to vibrate, he'd be killing himself when the apocalypse came. Uh-huh. She really is a twisty bitch. I don't even know how that makes sense to anyone, though. It's like, I'm just going to create all these stories and adventures in my own head, and then I'm just going to say it over and over and over again until somebody believes me and gives me money for it. I mean, it is, if, if she really is, uh, you know, high on her own supply, if she's buying her own shit, she, she is setting up sort of a logical thing, saying, you have to take lessons from me in vibration because if they don't, and you know about those lessons, 
you're committing suicide because the end of the world's going to come and you're going to die. You will have killed yourself, ostensibly, by not taking my vibrator lessons. Amber, my vibrator lessons, though. I mean, I will get my master's in it. (laughs) I will happily. (laughs) But also, that's false because you're not killing yourself. You're not the one doing it. Exactly. No, no, I, I know the logic definitely falls apart with just a tiny little poke. doesn't take much. You can actually kind of just give it a little, little puff of air, a little blow, yeah. <laughs> like a dandelion. <laughs> and yeah, it just flutters away. But if in her own head, she seems to have justified everything. So she, of course, has a throne and white robes with maybe some sort of purple adornment as well. Of course, purple. Quote, as well as a ring with a blue stone in it, as big as a hen's egg. They always, they're always describing like rings and jewels like that. And it's always, definitely not. Nobody could, nobody could do anything. Like that is (laughs) probably bigger than the back of my hand. Yeah, right. That's ridiculous. Like I have. uh, But great for punching. Well, yeah, yeah, there is that. Like, I have cocktail rings, you know, just like costume jewelry type stuff that are like maybe like flat and an inch and a half, maybe in diameter. But that, no, that as big as a cocktail, as big as an egg would be like too tall and too wide for your finger. Yeah, but I mean, I, I feel like if we've learned anything about um, like men and women and size differences, there is definitely a disconnect when it comes to size differences and what inches are. That's true. If a man wrote that bit about the, uh, the blue stone, then mm, I think we know where that came from. So she did give a talk to reporters and then one to detectives. And that reporter is two hands egg wide. <laughs> what just fell? I got excited. <laughs> that was my dick hitting the ground. We talked way too much about vibratory forces. And <laughs> we just vibrated right off the chair. So um, the detectives talked to her and they found nothing on which to base an arrest. So once again, free and clear. And she, uh, she said... In the article, they said she had given, quote, vibratory lessons to people at a distance for the curing of all sorts of ailments so she can vibrate from a distance. Distance learning, remote learning of vibratory They have that now. There's an app for that. (laughs) So it seems like sometime around this period, she died. She fell off the map. I don't think she could live without attention. So I'm pretty sure she must have died because the only time she shows up in the newspapers following that is in reference to other scam artists. I'm sorry, um, seance givers. Seance givers. And so she eventually kind of falls off the page when like nobody who was associated with her is really making the papers or when that association is forgotten. But Harry Houdini still needs to talk about her. And so in 1925, about 15 years after her probable death, He called her, quote, one of the 10 most prominent and dangerous female criminals of the world. And this is how he ends his column about her, to which I say, holy shit, Harry. She was no credit to spiritualism. She was no credit to any people. She was no credit to any country. She was one of those moral misfits, which every once in a while seemed to find their way into the world. Better far had she died at birth 
than to live and spread the evil she did. Damn. Again, I say, holy shit, Harry. He's got some feelings. He's like, somebody should have stabbed this bitch the second she came out. <laughs> Harry Houdini's going around in his imagination killing baby spiritualists. <laughs> so, yeah, that. Uh, do you have anything else on uh, her? Uh, no, not on her, but uh, there was one of her husbands, after he was released from jail, made headlines for hypnotizing a woman marrying her and then fleeing with her money. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Quote unquote hypnotizing. She insisted that he must have hypnotized her. And I'm like, no, you just bought his bullshit, honey. Yeah. And that was in Canada, if I remember correctly. Niagara Falls. Yeah. Yeah. So he he made it back over from, from England after his incarceration. And slightly early, at least. We don't know exactly when he was let out, but I think that was like 19... I want to say... 12 or 13? 1912. 1912, okay, yeah, and he was uh, sentenced in 1901, so yeah, it was 15 years. Yeah, it was pretty immediate uh, oh, from I'm him sure. getting out of jail that he did something stupid. Yeah, so he managed to get, like, four years shaved off. So, uh, I do not have a recipe for today because we're still getting back into practice. That's okay. This I was forgot. a pretty long one, too. It so. was, yeah. I forgot how to podcast. We've forgotten how to do lots of things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go work on my vibrating energy. <laughs> yes, you are. Well, I would like to welcome a new patron, Vaishan Edmund. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, Vaishan. And uh, so, yeah, you're going to work on your, uh, your, your vibratory processes. And um, I am going to hopefully sweat fewer buckets once I'm out of this room. Is yeah, my plan. It, is, it is toasty in here. Yeah, a little toasty. So uh, I think we're going to wrap this one up real quick. I, I did want to mention, um, if I can manage to get through it, some of you uh, are, are longtime listeners especially and people who follow the social media patrons who remember our uh, beautiful cat of the podcast, Hemingway. He of the, uh, he of the extra toes. Um, he passed away this past weekend uh, peacefully. And... <laughs> We miss him, and I'm sorry for bringing down the podcast after what was a very fun episode. <laughs> I should have done this at the top, but then I would have run out of energy. <laughs> we miss him very much, and, and there are definitely episodes where you can hear him yes. purring in the background, especially when we were recording out in the office. He, uh, he liked to sit on my lap and get all the scritches. Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. Yes, he loved Amber so much. He was always so excited when you came over. He loved Scott. Um, he, he loved the visitors to our house because he was like, new people to pet me. And he just loved everyone except, uh, anybody who worked at a vet. <laughs> Hated them. So, um, Miss Yahemi, the germs, as we called him, don't even ask, it's a whole thing. You know, everybody's pet has 17 million different names. And yeah, that's fair. Jackson gives ours 16,999,999 of them. <laughs> so, yeah, um... Just um, send out happy vibes to, you know, the great catnip in the sky where I'm sure he is chasing something. So, all right. Um, thank you for listening. And don't forget to vibrate when it's the end of the world. Oh, uh, my show notes for this is hoo-ha Houdini. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, I love it. That's perfect. I again forgot how to podcast and I don't have show notes titles. I didn't even have page numbers. I never knew where the hell we were. <laughs> I was like, this is going to end at some point. I'm like scrolling down on my tablet. I'm like, eventually her life has to end. I, know I, I, I had that. two piles going and I'm just like, oh no, what have I done? Because <laughs> yeah. I went a little wild and then I started shuffling papers. And so my page is like one five like it jumps <laughs> and I was just like what the fuck did I where did I stick four? Oh my god where is four did the did the spirit of Cornelius Vanderbilt come to steal it apparently <laughs> all right uh thank you for listening and we will see you next week bye bye uh sources oh I have mine if you... Go ahead. My sources this week are Wikipedia, 1890sWriters.blogspot by Tyne Reno, and Fascinate.com, as well as The Order of the Jackalope. My sources are The New York Times, Wikipedia, Theosophy and Arts, uh, Factinate, uh, the book Women Swindlers in America, 1860 to 1920 by Carrie Seagrave. Need to get my hands on a copy of that. Uh, the Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope by David White, New York Daily Herald, Baltimore County Union, and from newspapers.com, the Baltimore, thank you, Chris Garcia, the Baltimore Sun, and the Chicago uh, Tribune. You have so much more detail than me. And uh, Is it Factinate? I always thought it was Fascinate. It's Factinate, actually, yeah. I, I, I misread yeah. it too at first, but it's Factinate. Tricky bastards. Tricky bastards.